The Baker Street Readers present A Scandal in Bohemia From the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle. To Sherlock Holmes, she is always the woman. I have seldom heard him mention her under any other name. In his eyes, she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler, all emotions, and that one particularly, were abhorrent to his cold, precise, but honorably balanced mind. He was, I take it, the most perfect reasoning and observing machine that the world has seen. But as a lover, he would have placed himself in a false position. He never spoke of the softer passions, save with a jibe and a sneer. They were admirable things for the observer, excellent for drawing the veil from men's motives and actions. But for the trained reasoner to admit such intrusions into his own delicate and finely adjusted temperament was to introduce a distracting factor which might throw a doubt upon all his mental results. Grit in a sensitive instrument or a crack in one of his own high-power lenses would not be more disturbing than a strong emotion in a nature such as his. And yet there was but one woman to him, and that woman was the late Irene Adler of dubious and questionable memory. I had seen little of Holmes lately. My marriage had drifted us away from each other. My own complete happiness and the home-centered interests which rise up around the man who first finds himself master of his own establishment were sufficient to absorb all my attention, while Holmes, who loathed every form of society with his whole bohemian soul, remained in our lodgings in Baker Street, buried among his old books, and alternating from week to week between cocaine and ambition the drowsiness of the drug, and the fierce energy of his own keen nature. He was still, as ever, deeply attracted by the study of crime, and occupied his immense faculties and extraordinary powers of observation in following out those clues and clearing up those mysteries which had been abandoned as hopeless by the official police. From time to time I heard some vague account of his doings, of his summons to Odessa in the case of the Trepoff murder, of his clearing up of the singular tragedy of the Atkinson brothers at Trincomalee, and finally of the mission which he had accomplished so delicately and successfully for the reigning family of Holland. Beyond these signs of his activity, however, which I merely shared with all the readers of the daily press, I knew little of my former friend and companion. One night, it was on the 20th of March, 1888, I was returning from a journey to a patient for I had now returned to civil practice, when my way led me through Baker Street. As I passed the well-remembered door, which must always be associated in my mind with my wooing and with the dark incidents of the study in Scarlet, I was seized with a keen desire to see Holmes again and to know how he was employing his extraordinary powers. His rooms were brilliantly lit, and even as I looked up I saw his tall spare figure pass twice in a dark silhouette against the blind. He was pacing the room swiftly, eagerly, 
with his head sunk upon his chest and his hands clasped behind him. To me, who knew his every mood and habit, his attitude and manner told their own story. He was at work again. He had arisen out of his drug-created dreams and was hot upon the scent of some new problem. I rang the bell and was shown up to the chamber which had formerly been in part my own. His manner was not effusive. It seldom was. But he was glad, I think, to see me. With hardly a word spoken, but with a kindly eye, he waved me to an armchair, threw across his case of cigars, and indicated a spirit case and a gazogene in the corner. Then he stood before the fire and looked me over in his singular introspective fashion. Wedlock suits you. I think, Watson, that you have put on seven and a half pounds since I saw you. Seven? Indeed. I should have thought a little more. Just a trifle more, I fancy, Watson. And in practice again, I observe. You did not tell me that you intended to go into harness. Then how do you know? I see it. I deduce it. How do I know that you have been getting yourself very wet lately, and that you have a most clumsy and careless servant girl? My dear Holmes, this is too much. You would certainly have been burned had you lived a few centuries ago. It is true that I had a country walk on Thursday and came home in a dreadful mess, but as I have changed my clothes, I can't imagine how you deduce it. As to Mary Jane, she is incorrigible, and my wife has given her notice. But there again, I fail to see how you work it out. He chuckled to himself and rubbed his long, nervous hands together. <laughs> it is simplicity itself. My eyes tell me that on the inside of your left shoe, just where the firelight strikes it, the leather is scored by six almost parallel cuts. Obviously, they have been caused by someone who has very carelessly scraped round the edges of the sole in order to remove crusted mud from it. Hence, you see, my double deduction that you have been out in foul weather and that you have a particularly malignant boot-slitting specimen of the London slavey. As to your practice, if a gentleman walks into my room smelling of iodoform, with a black mark of nitrate of silver upon his right forefinger, and a bulge on the side of his top hat to show where he has secreted his stethoscope, I must be dull indeed if I do not pronounce him to be an active member of the medical profession. I could not help laughing at the ease with which he explained his process of deduction. When I hear you give your reasons, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself. Though at each successive instance of your reasoning, I am baffled until you explain your results. And yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Quite so, he answered, lighting a cigarette and throwing himself down into an armchair. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example... You have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room? Frequently. How often? Uh, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? How many? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed, and yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now, I know that there are 17 steps, because I have both seen and observed by the way, since you are interested in these little problems, and since you are good enough to chronicle one or two of my trifling experiences, you may be interested in this. He threw over a sheet of thick pink-tinted notepaper which had been lying open upon the table. It came by the last post. Read it aloud. The note was undated, and without either signature or address. 
They will call upon you tonight at a quarter to eight o'clock. A gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Your recent services to one of the royal houses of Europe have shown that you are one who may safely be trusted with matters which are of an importance which can be hardly exaggerated. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Be in your chamber, then, at that hour, and do not take it amiss if your visitor wears a mask. This is indeed a mystery. What do you imagine that it means? I have no data yet. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. But the note itself, what do you deduce from it? I carefully examined the writing and the paper upon which it was written. The man who wrote it was presumably well-to-do, I remarked, endeavoring to imitate my companion's processes. Such paper could not be bought under half a crown a packet. It is peculiarly strong and stiff. Peculiar? That is the very word. It is not an English paper at all. Hold it up to the light. I did so, and saw a large E with a small G, a P and a large G with a small T woven into the texture of the paper. What do you make of that? The name of the maker, no doubt. Or his monogram, rather. Not at all. The G with the small T stands for Gesellschaft, which is the German for company. It is a customary contraction like our co. P, of course, stands for papier. Now for the E-G. Let us glance at our continental gazetteer. He took down a heavy brown volume from his shelves. Eglo, Eglinitz. Here we are. Egria. It is a German-speaking country in Bohemia, not far from Carlsbad. Remarkable as being the scene of the death of Wallenstein and for its numerous glass factories and paper mills. Ha <laughs> ha, my boy, what do you make of that? His eyes sparkled, and he sent up a great blue triumphant cloud from his cigarette. The paper was made in Bohemia. Precisely. And the man who wrote the note is a German. Do you note the peculiar construction of the sentence, This account of you we have from all quarters received? A Frenchman or a Russian could not have written that. It is the German who is so uncourteous to his verbs. It only remains, therefore, to discover what is wanted by this German who writes upon bohemian paper, and prefers to wear a mask to showing his face. And here he comes, if I am not mistaken, to resolve all our doubts. As he spoke, there was the sharp sound of horses' hoofs and grating wheels against the curb, followed by a sharp pull at the bell. Holmes whistled. A pair by the sound, yes, he remarked, glancing out of the window. A nice little broom and a pair of beauties, a hundred and fifty guineas apiece. There's money in this case, Watson, if there's nothing else. I think that I had better go, Holmes. Not a bit, Doctor. Stay where you are. I am lost without my Barswell, and this promises to be interesting. It would be a pity to miss it. But your client... Never mind him. I may want your help, and so may he. Here he comes. Sit down in that armchair, Doctor, and give us your best attention. A slow and heavy step, which had been heard upon the stairs and in the passage, paused immediately outside the door. Then there was a loud and authoritative tap. Come in. A man entered who could hardly have been less than six feet six inches in height, with the chest and limbs of a Hercules. His dress was rich, with a richness which would in England be looked upon as akin to bad taste. 
Heavy bands of ostracon were slashed across the sleeves and fronts of his double-breasted coat, while the deep blue cloak which was thrown over his shoulders was lined with flame-coloured silk and secured at the neck with a brooch which consisted of a single flaming barrel. Boots which extended halfway up his calves and which were trimmed at the tops with rich brown fur completed the impression of barbaric opulence which was suggested by his whole appearance. He carried a broad-brimmed hat in his hand, while he wore across the upper part of his face, extending down past his cheekbones, a black vizard mask, which he had apparently adjusted that very moment, for his hand was still raised to it as he entered. From the lower part of the face he appeared to be a man of strong character, with a thick hanging lip and a long straight chin, suggestive of resolution pushed to the length of obstinacy. You had my note? he asked with a deep, harsh voice and a strongly marked German accent. I told you that I would call. He looked from one to the other of us, as if uncertain which to address. Pray, take a seat. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally good enough to help me in my cases. Whom have I the honor to address? You may address me as the Count von Kram, a bohemian nobleman. I understand that this... Gentlemen, your friend is a man of honor and discretion, whom I may trust with a matter of the most extreme importance. If not, I should much prefer to communicate with you alone. I rose to go, but Holmes caught me by the wrist and pushed me back into the chair. It is both or none. You may say before this gentleman anything which you may say to me. The Count shrugged his broad shoulders. Hmm. Then I must begin by binding you both to absolute secrecy for two years. At the end of that time, the matter will be of no importance. At present, it is not too much to say that it is of such fate it may have an influence upon European history. I promise. And I. Hmm. You will excuse the mask. The august person whom employs me wishes his agent to be unknown to you. And I may confess at once that the title by which I have just called myself is not exactly mine own. I was aware of it. The circumstances are of great delicacy, and every precaution has to be taken to clench what might grow to be an immense scandal and seriously compromise one of the reigning families of Europe. To speak plainly, the matter implicates the great house of Ormstein, Hereditary kings of Bohemia. I was also aware of that, murmured Holmes, settling himself down in his armchair and closing his eyes. Our visitor glanced with some apparent surprise at the languid, lounging figure of the man who had been no doubt depicted to him as the most incisive reasoner and most energetic agent in Europe. Holmes slowly reopened his eyes and looked impatiently at his gigantic client. If your majesty would condescend to state your case, I should be better able to advise you. The man sprang from his chair and paced up and down the room in uncontrollable agitation. Then, with a gesture of desperation, he tore the mask from his face and hurled it upon the ground. Ah, you are correct! I am the king! Why should I attempt to conceal it? Why, indeed... Your Majesty had not spoken before I was aware that I was addressing Wilhelm Gottsrich Sigismund von Ormstein, Grand Duke of Kasselfelstein and Hereditary King of Bohemia. But you can understand, said our strange visitor, sitting down once more and passing his hand over his high white forehead, 
You can understand that I am not accustomed to doing such business in mine own person. Yet the matter was so delicate that I could not confide it to an agent without putting myself in his power. I have come incognito from Prague for the very purpose of consulting you. Then pray consult, said Holmes, shutting his eyes once more. The facts, they are briefly these. Some five years ago, during a lengthy visit to Warsaw, I made the acquaintance of the well-known adventuress Irene Adler. The name is no doubt familiar to you. Uh, kindly look her up in my index, Doctor, murmured Holmes, without opening his eyes. For many years he had adopted a system of docketing all paragraphs concerning men and things, so that it was difficult to name a subject or a person on which he could not at once furnish information. In this case I found her biography sandwiched in between that of a Hebrew rabbi and that of a staff commander who had written a monograph upon the deep-sea fishes. Let me see. Hmm. Born in New Jersey in the year 1858. Contralto. Hmm. La Scala. Hmm. Prima Donna, Imperial Opera of Warsaw. Yes. Retired from the apparatic stage. Ha! Living in London. Quite so. Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote her some compromising letters, and is now desirous of getting those letters back. Precisely so, but, but how? Was there a secret marriage? None. No legal papers or certificates? None. Well, then I fail to follow, Your Majesty. If this young person should produce her letters for blackmailing or other purposes, how is she to prove their authenticity? There is the writing. <laughs> Poor forgery. Mine private note paper. Stolen. Mine own seal. Imitated. My photograph. What? We were both in the photograph. Oh, dear. That is very bad. Your Majesty has indeed committed an indiscretion. I was mad. Insane. You have compromised yourself seriously. I was only the crown prince then. I was young. I am but thirty now. It must be recovered. We have tried once we have failed. Your Majesty must pay. It must be bought. She will not sell. Stolen, then. Five attempts have been made. Twice burglars in my pay ransacked her house. Once we diverted her luggage while she travelled. Twice she has been waylaid. Ah, there has been no result. No sign of it? Absolutely none. Holmes laughed. It is quite a pretty little problem. What a very serious one to me! Very, indeed. And what does she propose to do with the photograph? She plans to ruin me. But how? I am about to be married. So I have heard. <sighs> to Clotilde Lossmann von Saxmeningen, second daughter of the King of Scandinavia. You may know the strict principles of her family. She is herself the very soul of delicacy. A shadow of doubt as to my conduct would bring this matter to an end. And Irene Adler? Threatens to send them the photograph. And she will do it. <laughs> I know that she will do it. You do not know her, but she has the soul of steel. She has the face of the most beautiful of women. And the mind of the most resolute. Men, rather than I should marry another woman, there are no lengths to which she would not go. 
None. You are sure that she has not sent it yet? I am sure. And why? Because she has said that she would send it on the day when the betrothal was publicly proclaimed. That will be next Monday. Oh, then we have three days yet. That is very fortunate, as I have one or two matters of importance to look into just at the present. Your Majesty will, of course, stay in London for the present? Certainly. You will find me at the Longham, under the name of the Count von Kram. Then I shall drop you a line to let you know how we progress. Pray do so. I shall be all anxiety. Uh, then as to money? Uh, you have carte blanche. Absolutely. I tell you that I would give one of the provinces of my kingdom to have that photograph. And for present expenses? The king took a heavy chamois leather bag from under his cloak and laid it on the table. There are three hundred pounds in gold and seven hundred in notes. Holmes scribbled a receipt upon a sheet of his notebook and handed it to him. And Mademoiselle's address? It's Briarney Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. Holmes took a note of it. One other question. Was the photograph a cabinet? It was. Then good night, Your Majesty, and I trust that we shall soon have some good news for you. And good night, Watson, he added, as the wheels of the royal broom rolled down the street. If you will be good enough to call tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock, I should like to chat this little matter over with you. At three o'clock precisely, I was at Baker Street, but Holmes had not yet returned. The landlady informed me that he had left the house shortly after eight o'clock in the morning. I sat down beside the fire, however, with the intention of awaiting him however long he might be. I was already deeply interested in his inquiry, for, though it was surrounded by none of the grim and strange features which were associated with the two crimes which I have already recorded, still the nature of the case and the exalted station of his client gave it a character of its own. Indeed, apart from the nature of the investigation which my friend had on hand, there was something in his masterly grasp of a situation and his keen, incisive reasoning which made it a pleasure to me to study his system of work and to follow the quick, subtle methods by which he disentangled the most inextricable mysteries. So accustomed was I to his invariable success that the very possibility of his failing had ceased to enter into my head. It was close upon four before the door opened, and a drunken-looking groom, ill-kempt and side-whiskered, with an inflamed face and disreputable clothes, walked into the room. Accustomed as I was to my friend's amazing powers and the use of disguises, I had to look three times before I was certain that it was indeed he. With a nod, he vanished into the bedroom, whence he emerged in five minutes tweed-suited and respectable as of old. Putting his hands into his pockets, he stretched out his legs in front of the fire and laughed heartily for some minutes. <laughs> well, really, he cried, and then he choked and laughed again until he was obliged to lie back, limp and helpless in the chair. What is it? It is quite too funny. I am sure you could never guess how I employed my morning or what I ended by doing. I can't imagine. I suppose that you have been watching the habits and perhaps the house of Miss Irene Adler. Quite so. But the sequel was rather unusual. I will tell you, however. I left the house a little after eight o'clock this morning in the character of a groom out of work. There is a wonderful sympathy and freemasonry among horsey men. Be one of them, and you will know all that there is to know. I soon found Briony Lodge, 
It is a bijou villa with a garden in the back, but built out in front right up to the road. Two stories, chub lock to the door, large sitting room on the right side, well furnished with long windows almost to the floor, and those preposterous English window fasteners which a child could open. Behind there was nothing remarkable, save that the passage window could be reached from the top of the coach house. I walked round it and examined it closely from every point of view, but without noting anything of interest. I then lounged down the street and found, as I expected, that there was a mews in the lane which runs down by one wall of the garden. I lent the ostlers a hand in rubbing down their horses, and I received in exchange twopence, a glass of half and half, two fills of shag tobacco, and as much information as I could desire about Miss Adler to say nothing of half a dozen other people in the neighborhood whom I was not in the least bit interested, but whose biographies I was compelled to listen to. And what of Irene Adler? Oh, she has turned all the men's heads down in that part. She is the daintiest thing under a bonnet on this planet. So say the serpentine muse to a man. She lives quietly, sings at concerts, drives out at five every day, and returns at seven sharp for dinner seldom goes out at other times except when she sings. Has only had one male visitor, but a good deal of him. He is dark, handsome, and dashing, never calls less than once a day, and often twice. He is a Mr. Godfrey Norton of the Inner Temple. See the advantages of having a cabman as a confidant? They had driven him home a dozen times from the Serpentine News and knew all about him. When I had listened to all that they had to tell, I began to walk up and down near Briny Lodge once more to think over my plan of campaign. This Godfrey Norton was evidently an important factor in the matter. He was a lawyer. That sounded ominous. What was the relation between them, then, and what was the object of his repeated visits? Was she his client, his friend, or his mistress? If the former, she probably transferred the photograph to his keeping. If the latter, it was less likely. On the issue of this question depended whether I should continue my work at Briony Lodge or turn my attention to the gentleman's chambers in the temple. It was a delicate point, and it widened my field of inquiry. I fear that I bore you with these details, but I have to let you see my little difficulties, if you are to understand the situation. I'm following you closely. I was still balancing the matter in my mind when a handsome cab drove up to Briony Lodge and a gentleman sprang out. He was a remarkably handsome man, dark, aquiline, and moustached, evidently the man of whom I had heard. He appeared to be in a great hurry, shouted to the cabman to wait, and brushed past the maid who opened the door with the air of a man who was thoroughly at home. He was in the house about half an hour, and I could catch glimpses of him in the windows of the sitting-room, pacing up and down, talking excitedly and waving his arms. Of her I could see nothing. Presently he emerged, looking more flurried than before. As he stepped up to the cab, he pulled a gold watch from his pocket and looked at it earnestly. Drive like the devil! First to Gross and Hankey's in Regent Street, and then to the Church of St. Monica in the Edgware Road. Half a guinea if you do it in twenty minutes. And away they went, and I was just wondering whether I should not do well to follow them, when up 
the lane came a neat little Landau, the coachman with his coat only half buttoned and a tie under his ear while all the tags of his harness were sticking out of the buckles. It hadn't pulled up before she shot out of the hall door and into it. I only caught a glimpse of her at the moment, but she was a lovely woman with a face that a man might die for. The Church of St. Monica, John, and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. This was quite too good to lose, Watson. I was just balancing whether I should run for it or whether I should perch behind her landau when a cab came through the street. The driver looked twice at such a shabby fare, but I jumped in before he could object. The Church of St. Monica, said I, and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. It was twenty-five minutes to twelve and of course it was clear enough what was in the wind. My cabby drove fast. I don't think I've ever drove faster, but the others were there before us. The cab and the landau with their steaming horses were in front of the door when I arrived. I paid the man and hurried into the church. There was not a soul there save the two whom I had followed and a surpliced clergyman who seemed to be expostulating with them. They were all three standing in a knot in front of the altar. I lounged up the side aisle like any other idler who has dropped into a church. Suddenly, to my surprise, the three at the altar faced round to me, and Godfrey Norton came running as hard as he could towards me. Thank God! You'll do! Come, come! What then? Come, man, come! Only three minutes or it won't be legal! I was half-dragged up to the altar, and before I knew where I was, I found myself mumbling responses which were whispered in my ear, and vouching for things of which I knew nothing, and generally assisting in the secure tying up of Irene Adler Spinster to Godfrey Norton Bachelor. It was all done in an instant, and there was the gentleman thanking me on one side and the lady on the other while the clergyman beamed on me in front. It was the most preposterous position in which I have ever found myself in my life, and it was the thought of it which started me laughing just now. It seems that there had been some informality about their license, and that the clergyman absolutely refused to marry them without a witness of some sort, and that my lucky appearance saved the bridegroom from having to sally out into the streets in search of a best man. The bride gave me a sovereign, and I mean to wear it on my watch-chain in memory of the occasion. Well, this is a very unexpected turn of affairs. And what then? Well, I found my plans very seriously menaced. It looked as if the pair might make an immediate departure, and so necessitate very prompt and energetic measures on my part. At the church door, however, they separated, he driving back to the temple and she to her own house. I shall drive out in the park, at five, as usual. I heard no more. They drove away in different directions, and I went off to make my own arrangements. Which are? Some cold beef and a glass of beer, he answered, ringing the bell. I have been too busy to think of food, and am likely to be busier still this evening. By the way, Doctor, I shall want your cooperation. I shall be delighted. You don't mind breaking the law? Not in the least. Nor running a chance of arrest? Not in a good cause. Oh, the cause is excellent. Then I am your man. I was sure that I might rely on you. But what is it you wish? When Mrs. Turner has brought in the tray, I will make it clear to you. Now, he said, as he turned hungrily on the simple fare that our landlady had provided, I must discuss it while I eat. 
for I have not much time. It is nearly five now. In two hours, we must be on the scene of action. Miss Irene, or Madame, rather, returns from her drive at seven. We must be at Briny Lodge to meet her. And what then? You must leave that to me. I have already arranged what is to occur. There is only one point on which I must insist. You must not interfere, come what may. You understand? I am to be neutral? To do nothing whatever. There will probably be some small unpleasantness. Do not join in it. It will end in my being conveyed into the house. Four or five minutes afterwards, the sitting room window will open. You are to station yourself close to that open window. Yes. You are to watch me, for I will be visible to you. Yes. And when I raise my hand, so... You will throw into the room what I give you to throw, and will at the same time raise the cry of fire. You quite follow me? Entirely. It is nothing very formidable, he said, taking a long cigar-shaped roll from his pocket. It is an ordinary plumber's smoke rocket, fitted with a cap at either end to make it self-lighting. Your task is confined to that. When you raise your cry of fire, it will be taken up by quite a number of people. You may walk to the end of the street, and I will rejoin you in ten minutes. I hope I have made myself clear. I am to remain neutral, to get near the window, to watch you, and at the signal to throw in this object, then to raise the cry of fire and to wait you at the corner of the street. Precisely. Then you may entirely rely on me. That is excellent. I think perhaps it is almost time that I prepare for the new role I have to play. He disappeared into his bedroom and returned in a few minutes in the character of an amiable and simple-minded nonconformist clergyman. His broad black hat, his baggy trousers, his white tie, his sympathetic smile and general look of peering and benevolent curiosity were such as Mr. John Hare alone could have equaled. It was not merely that Holmes changed his costume. His expression, his manner, his very soul seemed to vary with each fresh part that he assumed. The stage lost a fine actor, even as science lost an acute reasoner when he became a specialist in crime. It was a quarter past six when we left Baker Street, and it still wanted ten minutes to the hour when we found ourselves in Serpentine Avenue. It was already dusk, and the lamps were just being lighted as we paced up and down in front of Briony Lodge, waiting for the coming of its occupant. The house was just such as I had pictured it from Sherlock Holmes's succinct description but the locality appeared to be less private than I expected. The contrary, for a small street in a quiet neighborhood, it was remarkably animated. There was a group of shabbily dressed men smoking and lounging in a corner, a scissors grinder at his wheel, two guardsmen who were flirting with a nurse girl, and several well-dressed young men who were lounging up and down with cigars in their mouths. You see, remarked Holmes, as we paced to and fro in front of the house, this marriage rather simplifies matters. The photograph becomes a double-edged weapon now. The chances are that she would be as averse to it being seen by Mr. Godfrey Norton as our client is to its coming into the eyes of his princess. Now the question is, where do we find the photograph? Where indeed? It is most unlikely that she carries it about with her. It is cabinet size, too large for easy concealment about a woman's dress. She knows that the king is capable of having her waylaid and searched. Two attempts of the sort have already been made. We may take it, then, that she does not carry it about with her. Where, then? Her 
banker or her lawyer. There is that double possibility, but I am inclined to think neither. Women are naturally secretive, and they like to do their own secreting. Why should she hand it over to anyone else? She could trust her own guardianship, but she could not tell what indirect or political influence might be brought to bear upon the businessman. Besides, remember that she had resolved to use it within a few days. It must be where she can lay her hands upon it. It must be in her own house. But it has twice been burgled. Pshaw, they did not know how to look. But how will you look? I will not look. Well, what then? I will get her to show me. But she will refuse. She will not be able to. But I hear the rumble of the wheels. It is her carriage. Now carry out my orders to the letter. As he spoke, the gleam of the side-lights of a carriage came round the curve of the avenue. It was a smart little landau which rattled up to the door of Briony Lodge. As it pulled up, one of the loafing men at the corner dashed forward to open the door in the hope of earning a copper, but was elbowed away by another loafer who had rushed up with the same intention. A fierce quarrel broke out, which was increased by the two guardsmen who took sides with one of the loungers, and by the scissors grinder who was equally hot upon the other side. A blow was struck. And in an instant, the lady who had stepped from her carriage was the centre of a little knot of flushed and struggling men who struck savagely at each other with their fists and sticks. Holmes dashed into the crowd to protect the lady, but just as he reached her, he gave a cry and dropped to the ground with the blood running freely down his face. At his fall, the guardsmen took to their heels in one direction and the loungers in the other while a number of better-dressed people, who had watched the scuffle without taking part in it, crowded in to help the lady and to attend to the injured man. Irene Adler, as I will still call her, had hurried up the steps, but she stood at the top with her superb figure outlined against the lights of the hall, looking back into the street. Is the poor gentleman much hurt? He is dead. No, no, there's life in him, but he'll be gone before you can get him to a hospital. He's a brave fellow. They would have had the lady's purse and watch if it hadn't been for him. They were a gang, and a rough one too. Oh, he's briefing now. He can't lie in the street. May we bring him in, ma'am? Surely, bring him into the sitting room. There's a comfortable sofa this way, please. Slowly and solemnly he was borne into Briony Lodge and laid out in the principal room, while I still observed the proceedings from my post by the window. The lamps had been lit, but the blinds had not been drawn so that I could see Holmes as he lay upon the couch. I do not know whether he was seized with compunction at that moment for the part he was playing, but I know that I never felt more heartily ashamed of myself in my life than when I saw the beautiful creature against whom I was conspiring, or the grace and kindliness with which she waited upon the injured man. And yet it would be the blackest treachery to Holmes to draw back now from the part which he had entrusted to me. I hardened my heart and took the smoke rocket from under my ulster. After all, I thought, we are not injuring her, but we are but preventing her from injuring another. Holmes had sat up upon the couch, and I saw him motion like a man who is in need of air. A maid rushed across and threw open the window. At the same instant, I saw him raise his hand, and at the signal, I tossed my rocket into the room with a cry of fire. The word was no sooner out of my mouth than the whole crowd of spectators, well-dressed and ill, gentlemen, ostlers, and servant-maids, joined in a general shriek of fire! Thick clouds of smoke curled through the room and out of the open window. I caught a glimpse of rushing figures, and a moment later the voice of Holmes from within assuring them that it was a false alarm. 
Slipping through the shouting crowd, I made my way to the corner of the street, and in ten minutes was rejoiced to find my friend's arm in mine, and to get away from the scene of uproar. He walked swiftly and in silence for some few minutes, until we had turned down one of the quiet streets which lead towards the Edgware Road. You did it very nicely, Doctor. Nothing could have been better. It is all right. You have the photograph? I know where it is. And how did you find out? She showed it to me as I told you she would. I am still in the dark. <laughs> I do not wish to make a mystery. The matter was perfectly simple. You, of course, saw that everyone in the street was an accomplice. They were all engaged for the evening. I guessed as much. Then, when the row broke out, I had a little moist red paint in the palm of my hand. I rushed forward, fell down, clapped my hand to my face, and became a piteous spectacle. It is an old trick. This also I could fathom. Then they carried me in. She was bound to have me in. What else could she do? And into her sitting room, which is the very room which I suspected— it lay between that and her bedroom, and I was determined to see which. They laid me on the couch, I motioned for air, they were compelled to open the window, and you had your chance. Well, how did that help you? It was all important. When a woman thinks that her house is on fire, her instinct is at once to rush to the thing which she values most. It is a perfectly overpowering impulse, and I have more than once taken advantage of it. In the case of the Darlington substitution scandal it was of use to me, and also in the Arnsworth Castle business. A married woman grabs at her baby, an unmarried one reaches for her jewel box. Now it was clear to me that our lady of today had nothing in the house more precious to her than what we are in quest of. She would rush to secure it. The alarm of fire was admirably done the smoke and shouting were enough to shake nerves of steel she responded beautifully the photograph is in a recess behind a sliding panel just above the right bell pull she was there in an instant and i caught a glimpse of it as she half drew it out when i cried out that it was a false alarm she replaced it glanced at the rocket rushed from the room and i have not seen her since I rose, and, making my excuses, escaped from the house. I hesitated whether to attempt to secure the photograph at once, but the coachman had come in, and as he was watching me narrowly, it seemed safer to wait. A little over-precipitance may ruin all. And now? Our quest is practically finished. I shall call with the king tomorrow, and with you, if you care to come with us. We will be shown into the sitting-room to wait for the lady, but it is probable that when she comes she may find neither us nor the photograph. It might be a satisfaction to his majesty to regain it with his own hands. And when will you call? At eight in the morning. She will not be up, so we shall have a clear field. Besides, we must be prompt, for this marriage may mean a complete change in her life and habits. I must wire to the king without delay. We had reached Baker Street, and had stopped at the door. We were searching his pockets for the key when someone passing said, Good night, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. There were several people on the pavement at the time, but the greeting appeared to have come from a slim youth in an ulster who had hurried by. I've heard that voice before, said Holmes, staring down the dimly lit street. Now I wonder who the deuce that could have been. I slept at Baker Street that night. 
and we were engaged upon our toast and coffee in the morning when the King of Bohemia rushed into the room. You have really got it? He cried, grasping Sherlock Holmes by either shoulder and looking eagerly into his face. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, but, but you have hopes. I have hopes. Ah, then come, I am all impatience to be gone. Well, we must have a cab. None. My bram is waiting. Then that simplifies matters. We descended and started off once more for Briony Lodge. Irene Adler is married. Married? Then? Yesterday. But to whom? To an English lawyer named Norton. But she could not love him. I am in hopes that she does. And why in hopes? Because it would spare your majesty all fear of future annoyance. If the lady loves her husband, she does not love your majesty. If she does not love your majesty, then there is no reason why she should interfere with your majesty's plan. Mm, it is true, and yet... Ah, well, I wish she had been of mine own station. Ah, what a queen she would have made. He relapsed into a moody silence, which was not broken until we drew up in Serpentine Avenue. The door of Briny Lodge was open, and an elderly woman stood upon the steps. She watched us with a sardonic eye as we stepped from the broom. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I believe. I am Mr. Holmes, answered my companion, looking at her with a questioning and rather startled gaze. Indeed, my mistress told me that you were likely to call. She left this morning with her husband by the 515 train from Charing Cross for the continent. What? Sherlock Holmes staggered back, white with chagrin and surprise. Do you mean that she has left England? Never to return. And, and, and the papers? Oh, all is lost. We shall see. He pushed past the servant and rushed into the drawing room, followed by the king and myself. The furniture was scattered about in every direction, with dismantled shelves and open drawers, as if the lady had hurriedly ransacked them before her flight. Holmes rushed at the bell-pull, tore back a small sliding shutter, and, plunging in his hand, pulled out a photograph and a letter. The photograph was of Irene Adler herself in evening dress. The letter was superscribed to Sherlock Holmes Esquire, to be left till called for. My friend tore it open, and we all three read it together. It was dated at midnight of the preceding night, and ran in this way. My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you really did it very well. You took me in completely. Until after the alarm of fire, I had not a suspicion. But then, when I found how I had betrayed myself, I began to think. I had been warned against you months ago. I had been told that if the king employed an agent, it would certainly be you. And your address had been given me. Yet with all this, you made me reveal what you wanted to know. Even after I became suspicious, I found it hard to think evil of such a dear, old, kind clergyman. <laughs> but you know, I have been trained as an actress myself. Male costume is nothing new to me. I often take advantage of the freedom which it gives. I sent John, the coachman, to watch you, ran upstairs, got into my walking clothes, as I call them, and came down just as you departed. Well, I followed you to your door and so made sure that I really was an object of interest to the celebrated Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Then I rather imprudently wished you good night and started for the temple to see my husband. 
We both thought the best resource was flight when pursued by so formidable an antagonist. So you will find the nest empty when you call tomorrow. As to the photograph, your client may rest in peace. I love and am loved by a better man than he. The king may do what he will without hindrance from one who he has cruelly wronged. I keep it only to safeguard myself and to preserve a weapon which will always secure me from any steps which he might take in the future. I leave a photograph which he might care to possess, and I remain, dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, very truly yours, Irene Norton, nay Adler. What a woman! Oh, what a woman! cried the King of Bohemia when we had all three read this epistle. Did I not tell you how quick and resolute she was? <laughs> Would she not have made an admirable queen? Is it not a pity that she was not on my level? From what I have seen of the lady, she seems indeed to be on a very different level to your majesty. I am sorry that I have not been able to bring your majesty's business to a more successful conclusion. On the contrary, my dear sir, nothing could be more successful. <laughs> I know that her word is inviolate. The photograph is now as safe as if it were in the fire. I am glad to hear your majesty say so. I am immensely indebted to you. Pray tell me, in what way can I reward you? Uh, this ring! He slipped an emerald snake ring from his finger and held it out upon the palm of his hand. Your majesty has something which I should value even more highly. You have but to name it. This photograph. The king stared at him in amazement. Uh, Irene's photograph? Certainly, if you wish it. I thank your majesty. Then, if there's nothing more to be done in the matter, I have the honor to wish you a very good morning. He bowed, and, turning away without observing the hand which the king had stretched out to him, he set off in my company for his chambers. And that was how a great scandal threatened to affect the kingdom of Bohemia, and how the best plans of Sherlock Holmes were beaten by a woman's wit. He used to make merry over the cleverness of women, but I have not heard him do it of late. And when he speaks of Irene Adler, or when he refers to her photograph, it is always under the honorable title of The Woman. A Scandal in Bohemia by Arthur Conan Doyle With James Gelter as Sherlock Holmes Tony Grobe as Dr. Watson and Godfrey Norton Featuring Anders Burroughs as King von Ormstein and Olivia McNeely as Irene Adler and the Elderly Servant. Baker Street theme performed by Jonathan Kinnersley. Sound engineering by Jessica Gelter and Pete Wilson. Produced by James Gelter and Tony Grobe. Directed by James Gelter. Recorded at the Latches Theatre in Brattleboro, Vermont. And welcome to After the Read Scandal in Bohemia edition. As always, I am your co-host, Jay Gelter. I am your co-host, Tony Grobe. And joining us yet again is the King of Bohemia himself, Mr. Anders Burroughs. Hello. He's stroking his beard, ladies and gentlemen. He's, woo, it's, a, it's an audio medium, but he's performing just for Tony and I, which we appreciate. <laughs> the virtual background's just for you, too. 
I know. Hmm. Oh, he, Anders looks as though he's in front of a beautiful little brook with a with a lovely autumn foliage behind him, which is a little odd, but <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. First to business, as always, thank you to all of our patrons for supporting our podcast. Especially thank you to those detective tier patrons. It's an ever-growing list, Tony. Currently, oh, good. our detective tier patrons are Anna Behrens, Don Grobe, Donna Harlow, Holly Kennedy, Ian Hefley, Mary Allen, Denise Glover, Kelsey, and welcome to Maureen Ward. Yay! Woohoo! More the merrier, folks. Yes, Maureen, you have a beautiful Baker Street Readers mug, branded mug, on its way to you. And if you want your very own Baker Street Readers mug and get a shout out on every episode of the podcast, all you have to do is sign up to be a detective to your patron and you will get those things. And if you Hmm. don't want those things, then don't sign up to be a detective to your patron. Or do and just say don't don't do those things. I don't care. That's true. Yeah, right. You could always just like send it back or you know. Yeah. <laughs> Give it to a loved one, bequeath hmm. it in your will, hold on to it until then. <laughs> and also, as of now, we've been releasing a few of our early episodes for free. Episode two, The Adventure of the Crooked Man, is now available for free. So if you have any friends who you want to get interested in the podcast and you think, oh, they probably want to give it a try first they can always you can now download or stream the adventure of the crooked man from our patreon page for free lovely and also if you were constable or detective tier patron you've already heard that one but if you're only a regular patron then you've never heard that episode that we recorded Ah. in uh, so they get it now too they get it now too everybody wins yay Okay, enough with this business. Let's get into it. A scandal in Bohemia. Mm. How scandalous. <laughs> One of the most well-known Sherlock Holmes stories. It it stands up there in the canon. It was first published on the 25th of June in 1891 in the Strand Magazine. It is the first Sherlock Holmes short story, which I think is one of the reasons that it's such a well-regarded one mm-hmm. um, on top mm-hmm. of other reasons we'll get into. Mm. But up at this point, there had been the two, the first two novels, A Study in Scarlet and then The Sign of Four. This was right after Conan Doyle made an agreement with the Strand Magazine to start doing monthly short stories. This is the mm. first one he did and i think the fact that it is the first short story informs some of the things that he does with it Mm. (laughs) um like holmes very basic explanations to watson as to what who he is and what he does right because there were probably a ton of readers who had not read the novels so this is kind of a reintroduction to the character for a lot of people Mm mm-hmm and it's also a far less dramatic story than the previous two novels. It's kind of a real tone reset mm. for Conan Doyle to be like, all right, now we're doing this short form. Here's this Holmes guy, if you didn't know who he was before. And it's not always going to be murder and mayhem and right. dark themes. You're going mm-hmm. uh, to get some lighter fare here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one's sort of more domestic almost even. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the stakes are just this kind of generic, a scandal could happen in a different country. (laughs) It's not like, oh, um, you know, a a woman is going to be murdered if we don't figure this out by tomorrow. You know, Mm -hmm. but it is a very serious one to me. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Which, which kind of plays, I guess. Yeah. It does kind of play into this is the first time we see Holmes entertaining a nobleman and a nobleman's Mm -hmm. problem. And maybe that is kind of the point that like noblemen do not come to him with these life and death <laughs> dramatic problems. They come with them, which is yeah. like, oops, I took a naughty picture and somebody stole it. Or, oh, mm-hmm. oh no. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My marriage might, might get called off because there's a photograph of me with another woman. Oh, oh, oh I mean, I suppose oh. if a nobleman is, has their life in danger, they have bodyguards and whatnot. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. true. It's true. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a of a story that involves nobility and where there is that sort of there are mortal stakes. I mean, I mm. guess the one that I can come with the most is the Adventure of the Priory School, where the Lord's son is kidnapped. But Conan Doyle, for sensitivity of the time, doesn't let that story go to this place where, like, and maybe dead. Mm. um he doesn't allow it to go to that point but that's like the most that is like the highest stakes involving because there are other ones where it's like oh this rich colonel had his horse stolen like okay great (laughs) um Mm -hmm. not that not the highest or most important stakes is baskerville a minor noble or is he just a person who comes into wealth that's true he is he is a sir he is sir henry baskerville so i guess that's the highest but he himself is also as he's like this american cattle guy yeah <laughs> so, thunder. Right. he ain't no king yeah 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 he's yeah right he's technically an i mean yeah i don't think a sir doesn't make you a nobleman i'm not quite sure yeah i think you gotta get to lord status mm-hmm. to be a nobleman but anyway, King of Bohemia. Anders, this was your second time King of Bohemia in mm-hmm. for us because uh, people who are not familiar with the live shows that we did before we started the podcast, this is a story we did before. How was it to uh, revisit the uh, the big guy? Uh, it was fun. He's, he's, a, he's a fun character. Uh, in case you couldn't tell, uh, the German accent is not my native accent. So uh, <laughs> it was kind of... It was fooled me. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun to kind of get to try to dust it off again and kind of remind myself how it all works and watch a couple of YouTube videos and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, he's coming back to it the second time. I guess I, I had there was like a couple of things that maybe I had a slightly different perspective on or or whatever. Uh, just kind of coming at it again, and I I didn't have to necessarily worry as much to focusing exclusively on making sure I said the words in the correct accent i could kind of approach more from a sort of an acting standpoint because i had already done it in the past i was a little bit mm-hmm. comfortable with it already mm. it was fun to to you know get the family back together so to speak and like kind of run through it again absolutely i did a little researching on the king of bohemia and it turns out conan Doyle's playing a little fast and loose with dynasties and kingdoms here yeah <laughs> There's like he's doing he's doing this he's thing. Not he- totally historically accurate. What? Well, you know, it is, Shocking! It is this interesting balance that he strikes throughout the series of making it almost sound real. Like he really does this 
kind of blend of stuff that people are like, oh, I know that exact thing in that exact place. But also, wait, what is that thing? That sounds like that. Like sometimes he'll name check a real hotel. Mm-hmm. And then in the next story, you know, he brings up a fictional hotel that's in the location of a real hotel. Um, I, I don't really know. Or I mean, I'm sure nobody really knows other than him. Uh, I'll ask him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nobody really, really knows why he made these individual decisions of I'm going to make a, a reality check to this thing here. I'm going to, but I'm going to come up with a fictional thing here. But the King of Bohemia is an interesting example because at the time he wrote this story, the Kingdom of Bohemia was in possession of the uh, Habsburgs, the Austrian emperors. Ah, Part of their title was and King of Bohemia, mm-hmm. know, along with their whole list of royal credentials. Hmm. Now, is that just at the time that he wrote it or at the time when the story takes place? Uh, or is there a difference? That's true. What In my research, it said at the time of his writing, but I think, I think it was probably... They, they had it for a while. The, mm. the von Ormsteins, who he calls the hereditary kings, he, he kind of plays the line of what is he talking about? Because maybe Ormstein can't actually describe himself as the king of Bohemia, like publicly, but uh. hereditarily he should be the king of Bohemia. Uh, um, but at that but that being the case, the von Ormsteins were never a fan, were never a noble family. That's that's mm. a made up. <laughs> it's a made up hereditary king. Mm. And then of course that he is engaged to the daughter of the king of Scandinavia, and there has never been a king of Scandinavia. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> there is a there was a noble Scandinavian family called the Saxmeningans, which mm-hmm. is who uh, yeah. he name checks as being the fiance, but they just ruled over a duchy called mm. Saxmeningen. They, they oh. had no, they right. had no uh, royal claims. Hmm. So he makes up a house to fill in for one country. And then he uses a real house to give a king to a country that's never existed. <laughs> Interesting. Like I said, who knows why he made these choices in this way? Yeah. But also in uh, Noble Bachelor, Tony, which we just did, mm-hmm. and I thought for a moment, oh, is there a timeline thing here? Because I th- thought that he mentioned the King of Bohemia in that story, oh. but he doesn't. He says that his last client was the King of Scandinavia. Ah. And that story yes. actually takes ah. place before this one, this one timeline-wise. So he's right. helped both kings out. <laughs> <laughs> Both both sides of this impending marriage, right? Because he he mentioned another case in this mm. one that was a royal that he helped out some royals, which is why the king comes to him in the first place, right? Right, right. But that's that's Holland that they talk about. We're going to get into his side cases of this one in a that's a later segment. You're jumping the gun, Anders. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you didn't see my conversation outline. I, mean, I really I really worked this stuff out. I mean, it it, it could have just been a nice segue. To yeah. that segment if you want to just <laughs> jump ahead but you it's know. true I, I, all right you're right okay we'll jump ahead <laughs> i want to talk about irene adler first well, that fine, was the next bullet point we we can we can do that first jay if that will make you feel better we'll put a pin in it 
No, we're gonna we're gonna move. We'll we'll get back to Irene Adler. So we're gonna go back to a segment that we only did once that we said we were gonna, like really early on that we said we were gonna do a bunch and that we, then we haven't. It mm. is now time for Sherlock Holmes unheard cases. Ooh, I will drop in a musical tag here. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes unheard cases. That that's gonna be it. Okay. Add like a <laughs> at the end. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> so Sherlock Holmes on her cases. This one he brings up quite a few. And so mm. what I want to do is we're gonna go round robin and you have, let's say, 30 seconds to say what you think the plot of this case probably was. Oh geez. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna make this official. I'm getting the timer out on the old phone here. Oh dear. Yeah, we're really upping the game. Mm. All right. The stakes. The stakes are rising. All right. So we're gonna start. We're gonna start, Tony, with you first. All okay. Right. Tell Ooh. us the plot of the case of the Trepoff murder. The case of the Trepoff murder. Okay. Um. I guess the I guess the main question is was Holmes involved before or after the person died? You're wasting a lot of time contemplating. Just I, jump I, in. <laughs> okay. So, person comes to Holmes, says they're in trouble. Holmes helps him, but he still ends up getting killed. That's what I'm calling the trap off murder. <laughs> All right. Well, you did you did that in time. Yay. A little on a, a little vague. <laughs> You're like, well, there will be a client and a mystery. <laughs> and will someone solve. will die. Hey. <laughs> but you did accomplish the task in time. All right. Yay. All right, Anders, you're 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 next. You ready? Oof. All right. All right. Tell us the story of the tragedy of the Atkinson brothers. Uh, well, see, the Adkinson brothers, uh, they were both in love with the same woman, and uh, they would fight over her, uh, but eventually uh, one of them uh, sells out the other brother to a gang of ruffians, uh, but they actually end up in a twist, uh, backstabbing that original brother and murdering him. And so uh, Holmes has to figure out, you know, who hired who for what and what everything was going on. Maybe the end of it, it was actually the woman all along. Hey, Woo. that was good. You, you got it right in there. Nice, nice. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to try one. Here I go. I'm going to explain the mission for the reigning family of Holland. Okay, so it turns out that the king of Holland is really into licking other people's feet. It's like this fetish thing that he has, all right? But the problem is uh, uh, at one point, uh, somebody threatened to, somebody somebody snuck in and took pictures through like a, a, a two-way mirror or, and was like, oh, and so now the king's got to get the evidence of his foot licking back. He and seems to be on par with like kind of the, the scandal of Bohemia style of once again, mm. it's not really all that high stakes. It's really just yeah. embarrassment. Yeah. Right. How, and how, also, how bad would it really be? I mean, and also that's why in a later story, they name check this mystery again. And Holmes explains that it's a matter of such delicacy 
He cannot even confide it to Watson. Yeah. Wow. And I think right. the king is a secret foot licker. Mm. I think that qualifies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Not not something you'd want published in a strand. I, I can see that. Right, right. Okay, so for the last two cases that get mentioned, we'll play a slightly different game. So the case of the Darlington substitution scandal mm-hmm. and the Arnsworth Castle business. Holmes brings up both when talking about his trick of burning a place down oh, right. to see if a woman to see what a woman goes for. And then either, you know, uh, goes for the baby or goes for the jewel box. Right. So yeah. here's the question. <laughs> Has Holmes ever set a building on fire to see if a woman would save her baby? Oh, oh, it's it's, it's got to be the Darlington substitution scandal. I mean, yeah. one baby substituted for another. Oh, right? that's oh, good. Yeah, so one baby is her baby. One baby is another person's baby. Yeah. No one's sure which one. And she goes for the one that's hers. That's right. how he knows which one is or, hers. Or there's one baby in the house, and maybe she knows it's not really her baby. There so you go. They make her think that the building's on fire to think to see if she'll even think to go save the baby because it's not really her baby. Yeah. That's diabolical right there. That is incredibly diabolical. Yeah. Um, I mean, he could do it with a smoke rocket like he does in this one. Although it is worth noting in a later story, he does just straight up start a fire in someone's house. <laughs> to, to, I mean, he's not above that. Right. To, in, he that doesn't case, have a... in that case, to see if they had a secret room that they were hiding in. Right. But yeah, oh, oh right. Remember that. Right. Like, yeah. Let's just bring let's just bring in bales of straw and set them on fire in this guy's hallway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a secret room down there. Right. I know how we can get him out. <laughs> so yeah, so we'll say in the Arnsworth Castle business, in that case, she probably went for the jewels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that mm-hmm. that's what he was talking about. Where where are the jewels? <laughs> I mean, if she lives in a castle, you know, maybe it's yeah <laughs> a higher station anyway. So the jewels would be more valuable. I don't know. Yeah, more valuable than baby. <laughs> All right. Well, now, if you'll indulge me, oh please, perhaps we can talk about Irene Adler. Absolutely. Oh yeah, I think <laughs> it's only fair. The Irene Adler, mm. the one and only, mm-hmm. the late Irene Adler. Indeed. It is a question about the fact that Watson does refer to her as the late Irene Adler. This is true. I noticed that yes. this time, and I didn't really notice it the first time, but I, I mm-hmm. remember as we were reading, I was like, "Wait a minute." What? Yeah. I, I, I wondered about that, too, when we were recording. I'm like, oh, why is she late? What happened? <laughs> Not very punctual. <laughs> yeah, and in reading about it from a few different sources, there's this kind of disagreement as to why he describes her that way. Some people are like, well, she, oh. she just could be dead. It, the, he's writing mm-hmm. this a few years later. She somehow died in the meantime. It's weird that he doesn't mention it. But then mm-hmm. also... Um, it could just mean that she is now, what is the last name? She's Norton? Irene Norton now, right? Right. So yeah. in that way, which is not a common way to use the word late, but somebody points out that Conan Doyle does that in another story that he wrote. Ah. Um, it's in like each case. Like the old it's person in, is dead and now she's someone else entirely kind of idea? Or? I, I guess so. I think it's just Conan Doyle didn't quite know how to use that term. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, or it was accepted in that time to mean that but uh, just far less common than using it to describe someone who's dead hmm. um, yeah but I like hmm. to think she's dead 
I think it adds a little drama to everything. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Although usually, usually if somebody dies after a case, Watson mentions it. Oh yeah. Wrap up. Mm. Yep. There are a few stories that are like, and then they died a couple years later. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We solved this case for them, and unfortunately, it all ended in tragedy. Yeah, I kind of feel like, especially because of sort of the reverence that he has for her, that that if she had died, he might have mentioned, you know, like, oh, he still keeps that picture to remind himself of her, you know, right. uh, yep. wishing maybe things could have been different or whatever, like the closest thing he's ever had to an emotion, you know, or whatever. Know. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, and this brings us up to Sherlock Holmes as a lover, mm. which... You know, there's really two Sherlock Holmes, right? There's the canon Sherlock Holmes, and then there's the Sherlock Holmes of popular culture, Hmm. you know, who are not necessarily always the same character. (laughs) Right. Uh, There are things, there are things that the world accepts about Sherlock Holmes that is not actually in the, in the canon of Sherlock Holmes, the hat being one. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) and the the giant pipe right right? yes and the giant pipe yes he's never described as having that massive pipe it's usually a a small clay pipe or a cherry wood pipe not that massive meerschaum pipe Mm. i mean they've like literally named a type of pipe sherlock pipes because yeah 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 Mm -hmm. although he really smoked more of a gandalf (laughs) (laughs) yes yes it it clearly states he has two different pipes for two different purposes when he's thinking he does the long clay pipe when he's relaxing he does the cherry wood pipe interesting but sherlock holmes the idea that sherlock holmes could have a romantic interest which is no this is the only thing in the conan doyle canon that comes anywhere near to touching on that Mm-hmm. But even then, Watson states quite clearly in the beginning, but no, 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 no. He was not in yeah. love with her. No. <laughs> <laughs> he just found her fascinating. Mm-hmm. But Sherlock Holmes having a romantic interest happened right away in popular culture with the character. The very first play that was written about Sherlock Holmes, he had a love interest. Interesting. <laughs> right. We can We can blame William Gillette for this idea that Holmes can have a love interest. Mm. If, if people are not aware of who William Gillette is, why would you be? You're not us. You're not me. (laughs) 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 William Gillette was the first actor to ever play Sherlock Holmes. He co-wrote a play with Conan Doyle in Mm. 1899. So, I mean, when the short stories were still being, the first collections were still being written and released. But that play is basically Scandal in Bohemia, Final Problem, and Study in Scarlet. All kind of, he pulls from all three Ooh. of those to make kind of a new case. Hmm. And he gives he, the Irene Adler part, he renames, uh, what does he rename her as? Uh, Alice Faulkner. But it's basically the exact same character. And then Conan Doyle makes, uh, not Conan Doyle, Gillette made them a romantic pairing in the play. Oh which Conan Doyle said he didn't like, but then he saw the play and was like, oh, it's charming, it's fine. (laughs) So ever since then, there have been dozens and dozens of popular culture adaptations of Sherlock Holmes that just plop make Irene Adler his love interest, Mm. you know, as a given. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you polled people and you're like, hey, 
who's Irene Adler? If they know who she is, be like, I wonder if how many of them would say like, oh yeah, she's that girl that Sherlock Holmes is in love with. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I mean, the two biggest adaptations of Sherlock Holmes of modern times, the movie series with Robert Downey Jr., Irene Adler's his love interest. Mm-hmm. And then in the TV show Sherlock, Irene Adler's his love interest. You know, they right. can't just... There's kind of this like hard time people seem to have a hard time accepting Sherlock Holmes as an asexual character, mm-hmm. right? He's kind of, uh, there are people who really want to lean into this Irene Adler thing to just be like, no, he is just a standard heterosexual man. He's just really repressed about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other pe- and then there are a lot of other people who say, oh, there's plenty of uh, evidence that he is a gay man. Um, and that's, that's why he has this disinterest in in all the female characters that come his way. And it's like, why he hangs out with Watson so much. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, and there's lots of thinking. I'm lost the, without my Boswell. <laughs> and you know, there's evidence for, there's, you can find evidence for any of these interpretations and they're all what, what interpretation makes the reading more exciting and fun for you run with that interpretation. Mm. But you know, it seems, it seems to me that Conan Doyle clearly wanted to just not make sexuality a part of the equation for Holmes. Right. And we as modern audiences have a hard time having a hero that we aren't supposed to view in sexual terms. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's true. But it, it is interesting that he chose this to be the third story. Like he decides to get this out of the way. Yeah, with right. Holmes he's like, he's right not going to have a love interest. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now let's get on with it. Right. Because. <laughs> yeah. Because he has he has love stories in in both the novels. There's a love story attached to it. Mm-hmm. In studying Scarlet, there's a love story that goes on in the victim's backstory, and then in Sign of Four, Watson, right, has a love story where he meets his his wife and they become engaged and and all that. So yeah, this seems to be Conan Doyle once he starts these short stories. Yeah as Andrews, you put it just saying uh-uh ain't gonna happen that's not that's not who forget this is. about it <laughs> yeah which is a cool way of him just clearly stating i'm 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 gonna fight against expectations here yeah well and also you know the cases and the de- and the detecting are what these stories are going to be about not not any kind of romantic entanglements and you know it just kind of goes on to his more of his his thing of like he he really pushes in the early days, this idea that Holmes is not completely human. It seems like he's, (laughs) he really pushes and emphasizes these oddities of Holmes right away. I mean, Holmes is a weird, is really weird in studying Scarlet. Like he's a little, he's a little too much of an oddball and he kind of cuts back a little bit, (laughs) Um, but yeah, he's certainly, he's certainly making these statements of like, Holmes is an emotionless person. And do not ever expect me to change that, which he slightly does near the very end of the canon. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Well, does anybody else have any thoughts, feelings on a scandal in Bohemia? Well, it's interesting uh, given how impactful the Irene Adler character is uh, that she only has like, what, three lines, four lines? It's true. Yeah. 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 Like three lines and then the letter. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty yeah. much it. But Conan Doyle kind of 
will do that a lot to female characters make them important but don't give them much say right that's not to say he doesn't always do that i mean there are plenty of stories the one we're doing next week the client is a woman and does a lot of the talking um Mm -hmm. but yeah if if she's not filling the role of the client he usually gives them minimum dialogue time (laughs) right which is which is unfortunate (laughs) yeah she's quite a character and she's built up a great deal but doesn't doesn't get to say a whole lot unfortunately in some ways maybe this is actually why some of these more modern adaptions have taken some of these characters and like enhanced them and made them bigger and and more part of the story because they're like there aren't just aren't that many women in these stories so like they want it's true in today's age it's a lot more important for to be more of a balance makes for better stories too i totally i totally agree with that that it's totally worth going in and giving these characters more to do and more to say in the stories but even then it's a matter of by all means give irene adler her due and make her a more important part of adaptations but she doesn't have to be a lover to do that right right like that's all that's that's too basic a move like it's Mm -hmm. more fascinating for him to have this female adversary where there may be a tension there but there's never anything there's never truly any love connection between them you know right right and he's you know he's adept at at playing the part too like if need be so like you know it wouldn't be it would be would be totally within his character to like kind of string someone along uh and like kind of feign interest in order to get that person to relax or divulge something that he's trying to get them to divulge and be like, ha ha, I was thinking it the whole time. See ya. You know. Right. I think it just goes into a lot of modern adaptations, just the format they're in. People can't accept their heroes as being emotionless and <laughs> given someone a potential girlfriend and somebody they get the heart palpitations for is, is just, it's the most basic move to humanize someone. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's an easy plot point too. Right. to to make someone more important but we're we're gonna run out of time okay um the one other thing i wanted to mention is just in my research uh t- today i was looking up something about arthur conan doyle and so i typed his name into google and the third question that was auto-filled was was arthur conan doyle jack the ripper so i'm going to investigate that further <laughs> didn't okay. have time to go down that rabbit hole hmm. <laughs> it could anyway. be a deep one Right. But anyway, uh, thank you, Anders, for joining us on this. Tony, pleasure as always. Always, my friend. And we will see you, audience, next week in A Case of Identity. Anders ood. Tony, you usually (laughs) ood.